Here we go. Okay, so this is Charlie Morrow for Immerse. Sound, light, light, space, space. Sound, light, space, 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 space. Hello! <laughs> Thanks for joining us on this happy day. I'm Charlie Morrow. Welcome to Michael Gerzon's birthday day celebration for English mathematician and audio inventor, Michael Gerzon, who sadly died at the age of 55, whom I call the Einstein of immersive sound. A very nice man. Unfortunately, he passed away before his ideas and genius became lucrative. I don't think he was the type of man that really would have cared about the, the monetization of his product and his ideas. And he just didn't strike me as that kind of person. I think he'd be happy that somebody, especially his family, benefited from this. He was um, a genius and he was an amazing person. In my, in my long search, long search to, get to get information, information about Michael, Michael Gerzon, Gerzon, I came, I came across, across a wonderful, a wonderful tribute, tribute to, him to him by Gillard Kieran, and I reached out to him through social media, and he was very kind and agreed to talk to me about his old friend Gerzon. Turned out he was more than just a working friend. He knew him personally. They worked together on Wave software, which Gillard's one of the two founders. And Michael created many of the first Waves products and software. It's, uh, these are plugins. They are the kind of things that in an old recording studio would have been an actual box with knobs on it that you transform sound. But in the revolutionary idea that Waves had, you get a whole studio in a box. And nowadays you use these plugins, they're separate devices, on a workstation, which is a way of handling audio and manipulating it digitally on a computer. And uh, Gillat was also interested in Michael Gerzon's poetry and provided me with many of his poems and even some of the musical settings of his poems. Michael, it seemed, was as interested in music as he was in uh, mathematics and was an avid recordist. His friends report that he spent almost all of his time going from uh, one club to another following groups that he was interested in and to churches to hear performances that interested in him. He had very, very wide, but extremely high quality taste in music. And many of these recordings are in fact in the, the British National Archive collection. Gillard was with Michael and took him to the hospital the night he died. Michael was not a healthy man, but managed to always work past his, his health conditions, which were respiratory and gastric. Thank you for sending the poem. It's a very touching poem. You don't, you, you haven't seen it? No, I haven't. Um, I don't know how I could have missed it. I, I actually didn't know that he wrote. He has some amazing poems. I have to find it. It's on one of the old discs. <laughs> but I have all his poems. He has uh, several hundreds of them. 
Have they been published? If I don't think they have been published. Actually, I tried to convince some musicians to put music to some of his lyrics, and there were some experiments with that and some versions of stuff. There's a poem called Your Strength Too, which I thought was perfect. very controversial stuff there. In fact, in one of the poems, he says that he wrote about his mother being, his mother and grandmother, I think, being saved by Eichmann in the Holocaust. It was very interesting. So, so yeah. he's from a Jewish family? Yes, he was from a Jewish family. Gerson is Gershon. His, uh, his grandfather, his father's father was a very religious Jew. His, Michael's father couldn't stand it and became a rebel, anti-anti. Michael was like that too. He was he was the most uh, non-religious person, very, very down to earth. Everything's physics and math. And then he has this huge spirit in humanity and he was just like one of the kindest people you could ever meet. Have you, have you met him? Yes, I did. I met him when he was recording Derek Bailey's Company Week in London when it was at the ICA. What year is that? I think that was 1981. Okay. It's just been released on uh, some discs. And what was he doing other than that in, in, in 1981? I met him in 1991, 10 years later, at the Audio Engineering Society, a mutual, a mutual friend introduced us. Yeah, I, haven't, I didn't hear him before the friend told me, and, and then I got to, to know him very, very well. I spent from 91 till... Uh, I met him the, the day before he went to the hospital and then he died the following day. So 
I was there in Oxford with him, and uh, I know his that chapter from '91 to '96. That I know very well. Have you met Peter Craven? No. Well, that's someone you have to. I would love to. You know, I knew uh, I knew Gerson first as a recordist yeah, for the yeah. avant-garde because I'm yeah. an avant-garde musician and composer. And um, but later on. I became more aware of what he was doing because um, I had been earning my living as a jingle writer. And by the 90s, jingles was failing. And yeah. I, I sat down with some friends of mine from Arup Engineering and they advised me that since I was an event maker and knew spatial sound very well and in performance, that I should uh, look into Gersonics, Michael's work. And, um, and then I invented my own sequel to that, I have two patents and have been doing Morrow Sound uh, for the last 20 years. So I wound up uh, wearing, you know, his moccasins in a way. I remember I, I saw a lot of those writings that he used to write for magazines and for all these places. He was he was so prolific. He was amazing. He, he had this side, the artistic side, but he also had the scientific side where he was a mathematician and a physicist and he a deep thinker with amazing ideas. You couldn't surprise him with anything. Anything that you can, he's already done it. Wow. <laughs> he knows about it. He was, a, he was a character. What a character. Nice story though. It's uh, nice that you found friendship with him. That's uh... He was the, one of the, the most weirdest people in the industry. I mean, he was, uh, he had a rough life. He never, uh, he, he, was, he was way out there and way over most people's head. And he was he was eccentric, to, to say the least. So he couldn't hold a job in a normal company, even though he could be delivering amazing things for the companies. And uh, he was uh, taken advantage of a lot of times because he was good and naive. You know, Ambisonics wasn't a big commercial success, as you know. I know. <laughs> it kind of appeared maybe 50 years, 60 years, too early, but he worked it out already. He and other people, I mean, wasn't the only one, but... Uh, Amazing. I, I was impressed by the fact that he was a tremendous listener, and I was curious, you know, what did you observe in him? Did he, he seemed to love sound very, very much and sonic experience, and... Uh, well, you know, his... Uh, first of all, I his uh, breadth of understanding the physics behind the, the, the sound and the sound generation, I think was the most impressive for me. And he would connect it with abstract mathematical ideas that were just mind boggling, at least at the time for me. And I was a student in mathematics and a, a lover of sound, but then he put things kind of together with the physics and it was very inspiring. And uh, he was involved with our company from, uh, 91, at that time we, we were working for, my partner and I were working for a startup which later went out of, out of business. So he was working for us as a consultant at the time, developing all sorts of signal processing ideas. But later after that gig with the company was over, uh, we went to make Waves products. And Michael was there with us from there till 96. And all the first few products were in cooperation with Michael, and he had a lot of input into it. During those years, we were in touch a lot, and uh, we helped him move forward. When I met him, he was in terrible, terrible living conditions in England. 
So uh, we, we helped him move and we got an apartment for him and we put him on a steady, you know, he would get some consulting gigs here and there, but he was considered weirdo. He was considered too too eccentric for most people to handle in the industry. Uh, I take it he, uh, he, he, he lived alone. I didn't ever read that he had a family or a partner. He, he lived, in those years, he lived with another fellow called Terry. I would like to feature him. You know, he's kind of the hero of this book. And I've got over 45 podcasts, you know, ready to go. And it's all about what he's thought of. I wish Michael would have been uh, around. He would have had so much fun. Uh, I always say that he's like uh, a part of the uh, company. You know, his, his, his uh, spirit lives in the halls of waves. He, he was he was very important part of our uh, emergence, you know, you could say, and we, we feed on that, I think, even till today. It was such a brilliant idea in the first place, and uh, it was nice that you yeah. had, had the vision and, and the uh, sits flash. <laughs> yeah. He would always one-up you, you know, and he, yes. he, he was very competitive, let's put it this way. <laughs> <laughs> I met Derek Bailey early during the, or during the 70s, and uh, we became good friends. We did quite a number of recordings. In particular, he introduced me to Min Tanaka, a buto dancer with a company of others. And uh, Min wound up many times doing environmental dance with, with Derek uh, in alleys, on rooftops. Later on, I was able to work with Min on my light opera for six singers and uh, a company of budo dancers. So they start the piece in darkness. I light a fuse, and at the end of the fuse, which takes the length of the piece, a great lighthouse is erected. It's a metaphor for the fact that tools and weapons are the same thing, and you have to know the difference. There was a 1981 Company Week. Company Week was one of the projects that Derek loved to bring together improvisers he'd work with around the world and uh, perform in London at the Art Institute. It was also an important event because I met Michael Gerzon at that event. He attended and did some recording. I haven't found those recordings yet, but it was a very moving experience to meet him. He was a very intense and entirely focused guy and very mathematical in his thinking, at the same time very shy. And uh, Derek re really loved him and, and brought him into many, many sessions. Derek himself started out as a studio guitarist and playing all sorts of sessions and uh, lots of stuff for the BBC. And as he stretched out, he literally became his own school of improvisation and wrote a book on improvisation. So he meant a lot to me in a lot of different ways, and particularly because of the introduction to Michael Gerzon. Gerzon's work at the time in recording was what interested me. And towards the end of the 90s, through Brian Katz, I was introduced to ambisonics and 3D sound. It turns out Michael's the inventor of ambisonics and had patents in it and many papers on recording with spatial sound. And uh, so it was through Derek that I was led to Michael and led to the exploration of spatial sound. And fortunately, the Audio Engineering Society published many of his papers both for dimensional sound and also for later work that he did uh, with Bob Stewart and uh, Peter Craven in lossless compression 
All of those are being gathered together by the AES in a special Michael Gerzon collection. But meanwhile, coming back to Derek Bailey, he was a totally inspiring man. He had a fabulous sense of humor. He was absolutely always on his feet. And I wanted to mention Evan Parker, a close friend of, of Derek Bailey's and uh, a person whose work was extremely interesting to Michael Gerzon. He's an extraordinary musician, a man of both modesty, humor, and <laughs> endless music. And uh, we're playing his uh, snake in the background. Gillat has a project that means a lot to him. He wants to assemble all of Michael's work, and the papers that were published were only a, uh, a fraction of what Michael wrote. And aside from poetry, which was a separate category, in the technical writing area and the pure math work that Michael did, he was a mathematician as well as into acoustics, there are boxes of Michael's work which we're all seeking. So if anyone has any idea where they are, we want to find them. And Gillard wants to put up a special Michael Gerzon website with all of his published and unpublished papers. So do help us if you would. And uh, can uh, reach out to us here at um, Charlie Morrow at morrowsound.com. Gillard introduced me kindly to Bob Stewart. And uh, Bob, along with uh, Peter Craven, developed what's now known as MQA, Master Quality Authenticated. And it refers to a software process in which digital sound can be of the highest quality, prepared and then read back through this system. And this uh, is still making money for its inventors. And sadly, uh, Michael passed away before he could receive any of that money. But Bob talks about his ideas in sound and was a very kind and thoughtful person to interview. Here's Bob. So, Charlie, are you writing a book about Michael? I'm doing a book on uh, called Immerse. It's a podcast and a book. I'm an immersive audio designer and a sound artist. Over my many years, I've had many collaborators in the field. I interviewed over 45 of them for this project. I've been trying to get someone to write about Michael. I had met him when I played in Derek Bailey's Company Week back in the early 80s, but I needed a good chapter in the book because he's uh, providing the fundamental patents that uh, people rely on. And also I got patents by not doing what he did. So I was very mindful of, of his approach and, and other similar approaches. So he was a specter in my life in a good way. And so I uh, wound up creating this myself. By now, many of his patents must have expired. I think so. Yeah, he was great. I was just trying to talk to people who worked with him and who knew right. him personally, as I, as I had had a personal connection, and to piece together a, you know more of a personal profile of him than a uh, an engineering piece. But he interested me because he's a Renaissance guy. He was doing art, doing uh, he lo loved recording, and, and he did his science. Everybody I spoke to knew 
a bit about him, but didn't have a full sense of him. Well, the one who's still my very close friend and collaborator who knows a lot about him is Peter Craven. Peter knew him right back from undergraduate days at Oxford University. So Peter met him, I guess, in 1969. I met him in 1972. And we were pretty close. We stayed in touch very, very regularly right up until his death. We did a lot of work together leading right up to the invention of lossless compression. And we did that together with three of us. And then, the, you know, unfortunately, between the start of the lossless project and actually the discs coming out, that was when he died, which was a great shame. Now, I thought that there is a biographer working on Michael, but there's always been some contention around it. There was some reference from to somebody, but he didn't feel that the work was very good. He felt it was fanciful and he had no confidence that this was um, not fiction. Correct. And I don't think it's complete either, but there was one book published about Michael, but it was pretty shallow. Maybe that's the one we're thinking of. Maybe so. So it'd be good if you actually get there. Now, Keith Howard, he's trying to build an archive of all Michael's papers. That's very interesting. And Keith has written a few pieces about Michael, but he's never finished the project. This is quite a book that you're planning. Well, yeah, my book is, it's about my own work and right. my collaborators, and it includes people in architecture, in medical area, and, um, you know, in the arts. And um, Michael, so Michael and I are, ten, you know, Past, and I was very interested in his concepts of immersivity. The piece of him that most interested me was his mathematical mind and his true attention. He had the most incredible attention in my experience watching him record and take an interest in an area that I'm interested in, for, in that case, improvised music. The most personal of the uh, improvised music players were, were the people he was deeply interested in. I understand from his playlist that he, as well he recorded in churches and, and many other things. I'd be curious to see a full playlist of his audio archive. I never really crossed paths with him on the recording side. I was much more on the signal processing side. So the up and down matrixing, the lossless compression, transparent signal processing, things like noise shaping, pre-emphasis and those sort of things. We worked together on a lot of those things. We had a project called Extra Bits in 1990, 91, looking at how you could get more data down the pipe. Excellent. We were, yeah, we were all of us concerned about the fact that CD was not quite a good enough pipe. And we were also concerned about the number of channels. So do you use ambisonic concepts at the root of this? No. No, it's discrete. Yep. Yep. I found it to be less filled with artifacts. I hear artifacts very easily, and uh, I found, you know, at least my, to my ear, ambisonic artifacts are particularly audible when you turn your head. So slight, even slight perturbations of the, of the ears, you know, produce that. And since it, uh, I suffer, I've always suffered from motion sickness. And I developed my particular double double quad as a um, as a remediation for that. I'm also hyperactive, and I'm able to calm myself down when the system is producing good, clear sound and representation of an environment. Yes, ambisonics is a theoretically lovely idea, but I was never totally convinced. At least the first order demonstration. It's extremely elegant, like you say. I think it would be good to talk about ambisonics. When we listen to sound, when we're hearing it, we're surrounded by it. We know we're surrounded by it. So the idea of an ambisonic recording is that it enables you to hear sound from all around you. If you represent 
sounds in your virtual reality using the ambisonic format, you can then link to, say, to sensors on your virtual reality headset or headphones, whatever, and you can, as a person turns ahead, you can rotate the sound field so that the sounds remain stable as their head turns. And this makes them far more realistic. The reason that Michael and I were close was we were both have this passion for understanding, let's call it the neuroscience. How do we actually process things? Because there's still a huge gap between what I would call traditional audio engineering and what's actually going on. And we end up with some very inefficient processes as a result. You know, you get prescriptive audio, audio engineering ideas, but and sometimes they align, sometimes they don't. So Michael and I were very good friends on that basis. And Peter, who's astrophysicist, mathematician, particularly good at signal processing, the three of us brought a very complementary. You must have been. I mean, it's a great skill set blend. What a toolkit. Well, well, one of my skills, which neither of the other two had, was being able to conceptualize a problem. I would often say, it'd be great if we could do this, because in the back of my mind, I think this must be possible, but I don't know quite how to do it. And the typical process would be, wouldn't it be great if we could do X? And they would say, no, 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 no. And then two days later, one of them would call up and say, yeah, I've solved that. Fantastic. So, so I could place problems, but also I have another skill, which is seeing where something might be useful. So I was always the one who was saying, okay, that'll work, let's take it out. Let's go and talk to the DVD forum, let's talk to the RAA, let's talk to the music industry. Whereas Michael was an extreme sort of reclusive academic and Peter was sort of partway between. So in many ways we worked well together and it was a real tragedy when he died. Now, was he ill before that or was it a... He'd ha had illnesses in his life as long as I knew him, he was asthmatic. And he would he would have a, an inhaler, you know, and he would go to an AES meeting and he'd get more and more and more excited so that he was continuously having to take his medication because the more excited he got, the worse. And he also had a gut problem, which involved, I think, removing some of his bowel, which was a great shame. That's really a difficulty. So that was difficult. But what killed him was asthma. And he had a severe asthma attack when he was alone and maybe he couldn't get to his inhaler or something, just died prematurely. But it was asthma that caused him. Um, well, I have a lot of sympathy for that, being an asthmatic. My wife's severely asthmatic and uh, I feel very close to other asthmatics. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I, I suffered from it as a child too. I'm better these days. Uh, well, that is good. Better these uh, days. But um, but yeah, we knew what he was going through. So that was that. Was that history but he was also prolific he'd write things down and do papers and he was lucky and i think in the last five years of his life to be vaguely supported by two groups one was myself at meridian we would give them work and the other was gillard that way michael was always doing things for him you know equalizers and effects and plugins and things like that, which produced an income stream for him because he never he never really had a job in some ways, he never really left university. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. So he got by. But one of the things that we did together that was perhaps the first big one was noise shape. But the one became more successful was when we developed lossless compression. Yeah, that's a brilliant and important step. Exactly. And these days, it seems not only natural, but it seems like... Anyway, it's another topic. We'll come to that in a minute. But it was actually very hard to persuade the music industry that lossless compression was okay. 
And the reason we, we wanted to push it at that time particularly was the DVD disc, because we knew that if we could save space and so we could have more channels or higher quality. DVD audio came out of that, but I remember traveling to America, to Japan, to all through Europe, having to demonstrate to people that lossless didn't change the sound. Sony said, ah, oh, lossless compression is very good. It might be different, but it's very good. So, no, it's identical. But, but that was stuff we did together. And uh, Michael was on the ARA committee. Do you know about the ARA? No, please tell me. Oh, so this was a kind of ad hoc pressure group that was formed originally by a guy called Hiro Nagishi, who was the CTO of Canon. The Hero started the ARM, which was originally, it's called the Acoustic Renaissance for Audio, and it was really about immersive. And to cut a long story short, he, he had to go back to Japan and he handed it to Raymond Cook of Kev. And then Raymond got sick and he handed it over to me. Right about this time, we thought, well, a good thing we could do for immersive and sound quality is form a proposal and actually go out and advocate the use of lossless compression. I'll send you a copy of the report, which dates 1994, I think, which was the pressure document that really created the ability to do DVD audio and, and then Blu-ray. Fantastic. And these days, people just think lossless is part of the landscape, you know, but, it, but to actually get it adopted was really hard work. I remember flying to, to an RAA meeting and it all the rooms full of all these music executives and who were quite skeptical, but, but we did it. Congratulations. That's a very important step. It, it affects all of our work. I mean, to have the concept yeah. of clean, clear sound that you can believe in is very important because um, a lot of people well, have lost faith with, with cassettes exactly. and such. Exactly. But, but that's the, the key point that lossless is just about moving digital data. What we've worked, Peter and I have worked on really for the last 12 years with the MQA project and all the origins of it is not how to move digital data from one place to another, but how to move the sound from one place to another. Because sound starts as analog and it ends up as analog and half the problem of digital, no, maybe more, is in the converters. So of you course. can convert it to digital, convert it to digital, then it's trivial. You can move the data, but then you have to turn it back again. I'm wondering how I can best help you in your Michael quest. I mean, what you've already said about the way you work together is very important to me because my book is about collaboration between people that got things done. I mean, every one of the people I've interviewed and worked with, we've done a major project together. And that's a, that's the unspoken subtext everywhere, how it is that we're able to move ahead and get things done, area of mutual interest, which is immersive experience. I knew I had a book. Are you familiar with this one? No, I, I've read about it. I never got it. Like $200 or something. <laughs> it was written by Stephen Thornton. He was a member of the Tape Recording Society. Well, I should lot. definitely uh, then acquire that book. Well, this is quite an interesting book about Michael. I, I have mostly things like copies of his papers and notes and faxes that he sent. Because in the day, that's how you communicated. He would send me faxes about it. Sure. I had kind of given up on the thought that I might be able to find a way of including him more than anecdotally, but uh, suddenly uh, here we are. This completes the story. Well, I'm happy to answer any questions. And, and my deeper questions that I'm most interested in are the ones about what he was like to work with, the kind of things that intrigued him, what, what as you pointed out, what brought him forward. He was obviously driven by uh, an inquiry that expanded as he went along and it was yes. a combination of his ears and his mind, his 
what I understand is his combination of being kind of a geometer and an acoustics guy and pure mathematician. There was just some combination of, yeah. of, of the real and the, the purely mathematical that was intriguing for me. Yes. The, the whole ambisonic project was perfect for him because it brought all those things together. But he was much wider than that. He was very easy to distract. So he would work on something and then he'd discover something and he'd go another alleyway and then he'd make another diversion. So sometimes it's very hard to bring him back to the problem we were trying to solve. It's like so many beautiful problems out there. <laughs> I know, the world abounds in beautiful problems. <laughs> it's been a while since he died. It has. It's a labor of love, this book. And so um, I'm not going to leave the story untold. Michael's important to this. He's a, in the end, he's part of what you you and Michael are. And I mentioned Peter Craven is, um, have, have laid the groundwork of what a lot of us are working with now. And I think that's important. When we developed lossless compression, we actually made it successful. Michael died halfway through the middle. We eventually sold the technology and it was Peter Gerson who inherited that benefit of his share of it. So he always felt very guilty that he benefited financially significantly from his brother's work. But I know he had a family. I know he had um, daughters. So who knows who's in charge of giving you permission for what? Well, thank you for the discussion. and It's been such a pleasure meeting you. Your ear doesn't simply hear sound right to left or front to back. Your ear hears and your brain synthesizes sound from all directions. That has been the shortcoming of sound reproduction for the last century. It has not been able to reproduce sound omnidirectionally, the way your ears hear it. This inability has kept sound reproduction from establishing a true sense of environment, of actually transporting you to a place both real and emotionally dynamic. Sound, light, space, 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 space. Thank you, Bob. That's very kind of you. I understand that you studied psychoacoustics and electronic engineering at Birmingham University and operations research at the Imperial College in London, and that your passion for music led you to specialize. And I'm glad that you did, and it's wonderful that you've formed Meridian, which started way back when uh, Michael was around, and uh, you're still the chairman. Your papers are extremely excellent. I've gone through a number of them. The AES has all those papers. And uh, AES, fortunately, is uh, quite interested in Michael and helping sponsor this recording and show and is putting together a compilation of all of Michael's papers, which would, of course, include your collaborative papers. So I know you're going to be happy to hear that this will be a special product from the AES in Michael's honor. So thank you so much for taking the time. Ambisonics approach is different. This three-dimensional sound field is, is great. Ambisonics is the way sound may be broadcast in the future. Michael was the technical guru. Thanks for joining us. Today we're talking with Brian Katz, acoustician. CNRS Research Director at Sorbonne University's Institute Jean-Laurent d'Alembert Sound Lab, 
a specialist in spatial hearing, room acoustics, and virtual reality. So welcome. And I wanted to just have a, a few simple answers about okay. the origins of something other than just monaural sound. Yeah and, yeah. and I thought if I could just ask you about different types of sound and, and you could explain them. I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's always the cutting room floor. <laughs> well, I'm curious, what is mono sound, monaural sound? Monaural sound is in audio, it's basically a single track. Listening wise, that would mean if you're over loudspeakers, it means you have one speaker playing that sound. It only needs one for mono. If you're listening to it over headphones, it means you're hearing the exact same thing in both ears. So that would be kind of the, I'd say the three phases of what mono could be described as. Well, what's interesting is since mono is where it all started, the first mono recordings that I'm aware of were done with a listening cone that then vibrated some sort of a cutting device that would put the vibrations physically onto wax or some other permeable material. Yeah, so, you have so, the old kind of wax cylinders and, the, you know, the picture of the horn and the, the dog sitting by the horn. That was the master's voice in mono. Exactly. And um, what occurs there is that for every vibration in the room, there is a direct vibration being done in the recording medium, the wax, right? So Yeah, yeah. And so that that is true analog recording, right? Because there's a absolutely one-to-one ratio if it's done right, between the vibration in the room yes. and, uh, and yes. capturing it. Given the limits of physics and whatever the, the wax is doing and the needle is doing. Well, there's been some um, work with decoding those old recordings recently using light that got a lot yeah. more out of them than you could with a metal. Yeah, and it's also non-destructive, so you can rescan them multiple times if it's with a laser. Whereas every time you read a wax cylinder with a needle, you actually degrade the wax cylinder because it has to have contact. Kind of the physical principle, if you can't look at something without interacting with and looking at a wax recording, with the needle is highly interactive on the wax. <laughs> well, thank you for explaining that. Now, moving up to stereo, can you explain what, what the idea is with, with stereo and how it is done both in recording and in, uh, in terms of playing back? I mean, I don't know a lot of the theory on, on kind of recording engineering, but I know there's a lot of different concepts to, to how to do a stereo recording. The most simplest is stereo is two channels, so two track. And the idea is that you have some level of incoherence between the two, so that if I have two speakers playing back stereo recording, then I, I can have a sound coming out of one speaker, I can have a sound coming out of the other speaker, or I can have bits of the same sound coming out in a different kind of ratio in terms of level and time alignment between the two. They can actually create sounds that are between the speakers or even slightly beyond the speaker. So that would be a, a general overview of how stereo works. And kind of the original stereo was, I think, on a record player. So instead of having a single needle, you actually have two needles and you're going in a V groove. And you have one groove that's being the left channel and one groove that's being the right channel. And you have a needle that's kind of bouncing around in between them. I was going to say, Sorry. what kind of a sound portrait do you, do you get then? When, with the mono, I understand you could you really hear all the way into the recording. You hear what, so to speak, in, into what the micro microphone has heard. You get a kind of depth of field. I mean, for, for me, mono throws everything together and has no bias or preference to any sound. Everything gets kind of combined together. So for example, if I'm talking in a, in a group of people, of real people, I can focus on one person talking or focus on the other person talking.
talking. If I make a mono recording of that, everybody gets kind of smushed together, and it's very hard to pick out certain elements,、um, whether it's different people talking or background noise. But that's mostly because of how the the auditory system works. That you can use differences in level and definitely differences in time alignment between sounds arriving in your ears to kind of focus attention. So stereo is kind of going towards that, so that you can have kind of some kind of spatial separation, which is what the brain is quite good at exploiting in terms of focusing attention. Stereo creates a kind of space. Yeah, stereo creates kind of a, a linear space between the two speakers, and if you really push it with time delays, you can go beyond those two speakers. And what that means when you listen to it over headphones, because there's only very simple differences between the two of level and time, you basically have the sound is either sitting on this ear, it's sitting on this ear, or it's kind of oscillating somewhere between your two ears. There's no kind of external space. It's I mean, it's a recording system that's very much designed to We listen to over speakers and how those two speakers are interacting. And when you listen to it over headphones, all those intentions in kind of the mix design、uh, don't necessarily come forward. So, and then in、uh, recording engineering, there's lots of ideas of which kind of microphones and how they should be spaced and where they should be pointed to give kind of different spatial reconstructions or spatial creations. I would say more it's, it's more creative than reconstructing, but to give the impression that the recording engineer is trying to get across. Would you say there's any kind of relationship between a lens on a camera and a, a microphone? If I was going to do a relationship between that, it would be a, not so much the lens, but the film or the kind of the digital.、Uh, I forgot what it's called. <laughs> the thing where all the little captors are. I mean, mono is is a one pixel view of the world that's changing in kind of brightness over time, and stereo is a two pixel image. <laughs> it's the difference between. Kind of pictures and and visual,、uh, you can have static object. A photograph is a high spatial resolution, but it's only one moment in time. I mean, audio is the antithesis of that. You can never stop sound because if you stop it, it's not sound anymore. So it's it's a lot of time, but only one pixel. Expanding that, then, when you get into larger format or more more speaker format like quad and then ambisonic, how do they work? So quad and all. The kind of surround sound format, so Dolby 5.1 and Atmos and those extensions are really building on stereo with just more speakers trying to fill more of the space. But it's always working on the same kind of principle of some kind of level time difference between pairs or triplets of speakers to be able to create kind of a good picture. Or a good kind of artistic spatial reconstruction, and the more speakers you have, the more detail you can have. But even as with stereo, the function of it or how well it works is very much dependent on having the speakers at the right places. So there's kind of standards. You know, a 5.1 has very specific places for those speakers, so that the sound engineer and the person at home is listening to kind of the same physical layout. And it's quite highly dependent on that. If you if you move the speakers around into different places, then the effect is not going to be the Effect that the sound engineer was looking for, and I think ambisonics was kind of the first method that separated that and said, "I want a kind of an intermediary format to encode sound in space that is independent of how I'm going to play it back." So it's very mathematical. It's very pretty. 
it's a sense of basically saying, I want a sound and I put it at X, Y, Z. And then once I lay out my speakers at home, which could be, I could have five speakers, you could have 10 speakers and we could all have them quite differently. But when we play it back, my system knows where my speakers are and it tries its best to put that sound where it should have been. How well it does that is still a function of how many speakers we have, but it means that we can have our own kind of installation system. That's how I would first present those kind of differences. If you look more at ambisonics to try and understand it without going into the math, you can kind of think about it the same way we think about frequencies and an EQ, which I think most people know what a, an equalizer can, can look at. So ambisonics uh, in the math has what we call orders, which are higher and higher levels of complexity. And the higher complexity has more channels to it. But if you took it the, the most simplest, so the zero order of ambisonics is, is a mono omnidirectional microphone. And it's kind of the equivalent of a volume knob on your stereo. I mean, everything goes up, everything goes down, and there's no spatial information. And then you could look at first order ambisonics, which kind of is like an X-ish, a Y-ish, and a Z-ish. And it's kind of the equivalent of like the old, like a home stereo that has a bass, middle, and a treble. So you can kind of adjust the spatial detail, but it's it's quite rough. So I can have something more leftish or more frontish or more uppish, but you're never going to be able to kind of precisely adjust or tune a given frequency. And then as you go up in orders, uh, it's like going to an octave band equalizer and then a third octave band equalizer and then a twelfth octave band equalizer. And the more controls you have, then the more precise you can kind of spatialize certain sounds and control where things are. That's kind of an analogy that I think more general public would understand versus talking about spherical vessel functions and, and things like that. Well, one interesting thing about that kind of system is being aware of the coordinates that you, you're talking about X, Y, and Z. Would you explain what X, Y, and Z are? Maybe you could move your hands. <laughs> I, mean, I think the, the default uh, kind of coordinates that's usually used, at least with ambisonics, is X is forward and backwards, and Y is left and right, and Z is up and down. And that was kind of probably first done by Gerson in the first downfield microphone. You have to pick a direction at some point of what your reference and that seems to be kind of the running standard now that for most ambisonic microphones, there's a logo and logo is X. And it's just kind of a way to standardize how you set things up. But if you get it wrong, it's something that's quite easy to fix of saying, you know, turn everything 90 degrees and then maybe it works better. <laughs> I think in the academic circles and in, in different lines of physics, it's not always exactly clear which way is which. I mean, we were installing a system that had a 150 loudspeaker and I was trying to set it up for ambisonic and I, for like a good week it just didn't sound right we had a very nice recording of a of a guy fishing and throwing rocks into a lake and it just never worked and then i suddenly realized that the person who had written the decoder had x going up so if i laid down on the floor i had the perfect soundscape but basically the the beach was spanning up over in the ceiling so once we fixed that it was quite fine so i think before the the more modern standardization. And I think people are much better now, I think with Ambix and the common standardization of, of ambisonic formats before that. So this was maybe 10, 15 years ago. Kind of everybody did it their own way <laughs> and you were never quite sure how things would work. Well, thank you. I think you've uh, given me the uh, a very good explanation of what's going on. And I would just ask you how the kind of data that you're able to record in a space 
could be used to reconstruct a space, given these kind of tools. Do those things compare is that these spatial tools and then having collected a lot of information about a space, can one build? Yeah, so, I mean, given a, a three-dimensional microphone in a space, if I, if I do a recording, then it, not only does it capture the sounds that are happening, but it captures kind of the whole soundscape and the reverberation and the different details of that space. We're working on reconstruction of historic buildings, for example. So we're working on the Cathedral of Notre Dame. So at one point we were in the cathedral and we had ambisonic microphones. So we're able to really kind of capture the reflection pattern that represents the space of Notre Dame. And then we can recreate that directly from those recordings or measurements. If we want to go farther, we can actually make a computer model of that space, simulate the same kind of multi-microphone ambisonic recordings. And if we get the same result at those measurements, points that we recreate, then that gives us the freedom to now move the microphone around in the model and we can hear other points that we didn't measure. So that's kind of an extension of how to go beyond just the points that you measured and be able to have a, a, a better idea of what's happening in other places. Well, thank you very much. I think I've got what I need. I'm going to, I'm, I'm okay. really pleased because you've, you explained it very clearly. I, I understand what you mean. What you said. <laughs> well, that's already good. a good thing. Yes. I intentionally didn't sleep all night, so I would be uh, biologically stupid. And then if <laughs> still preaching to the converted, so I don't know. <laughs> of course. <yeah. laughs> well, but it is, uh, these are audio illusions. I think all of them hearing is yeah. itself yeah. just a, something that our bodies have learned to do in order to hunt and survive and stuff. To hunt and run away. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you a very nice day and thanks so much for making the time today. But it's my pleasure. I always enjoy our talk. Michael Gerson's contributions to the world of audio are probably more extensive than most people who have heard of him even realise. Space, 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 space. My collaborator Bart Plantinga was talking with English singer, composer, trumpeter Phil Minton about our search for musicians who knew Michael Gerzon well. He told us that Pat Thomas, Oxford, England, pianist-composer, was mentored by Michael. Pat Thomas kindly gave us an interview. Seems he spent lots of time with Michael, both in Michael's apartment, studio, and at music events. Michael was a huge fan of live music and recording live music. Pat kindly shares stories. Here we are, and it's Michael Garrison that's uh, brought us together in a, in a curious yeah. way. So how did you know Michael? I met him at Derek Bailey's 1981 Company Week. I was playing in, in, playing in that. Who are you playing with? Derek Bailey, Tristan Hansiger. It's Christine Jeffrey. Oh, wow. Toshinori Kondo, Charlie Morrow. Amazing. David Toop. What a gig. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, so, so that's where I met him. In those days, I, I was a producer of art events, and it was advised that I should do 3D sound. And when I got into it, um, I started with Ambisonics, and um, eventually I got my own patents and have installations all over the world for that. It turned out then that Michael was my ancestor because he had gotten the original patents. <coughs> it was my modulation <laughs> into his turf, so to speak. 
as an as a sound software designer, uh, I wanted to create an experience that I found enveloping. I had mm -hmm. uh, prior to all of that, really early in my life, I'm almost 80. And when I was 20, I wow. kind of did a regression into remembering what it was like before I was born. Mm -hmm. Immersion stuck with me. And so that's what I went for, you know, once I started building these sound environments. No, I mean, the, the amazing thing about Michael is that he would tell you things and it was above our head at the time. He would tell us things about what's going to happen in the future. And we all knew he was clever, but some of the stuff he was saying seemed so crazy. And it's only in, only until the 90s when the software, you know, when these, these um, things started to change in the late 90s and became more available, I realized what he was talking about. He used to tell me all about these different delays you'll be able to use and you'll be able to use app. It's incredible. And he was someone who was so obsessed with music and um, the, he'd always record everything. But sometimes he'd record them in strange ways. And then I realized it's because he was the inventor of, of you know, ambisonics. You know, and he was always into different ways of using the microphone to capture the sound. And he's basically documented my whole career, thanks to Michael, because in the British Library, because he gave all his recordings to the British Library. He was a real um, a great supporter of, of um, my music. Like I said, I met him around when I was 22, 23. He's, you know, he's a great documenter, so he's got most of my careers. And some of the things he was saying were just... We just had no idea what he was talking about, and it only made sense. Sadly, in his last years, when he passed away, and he was starting to get some money, he was always very ill, you know. I'm not sure what it was, but he had an asthmatic condition, so he'd always used to have his inhaler, and he'd get, he'd get too excited, because, you know, I don't know if you know Michael, but it's very hard to get away from him. You can't just have a conversation for, like, ten minutes with Michael. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, that I remember. That's why I was... I, but I could never get back to him somehow. Um, he's, he was hard. Once I went back to New York after company week, I just couldn't find him again. Uh, I know, I know. He was always busy. And he would always... And like when I used to go around to his place, because he had, you know, he, he probably had one of the greatest record collections ever, you know. So you'd be in there, and as a, as a young musician, you know, you'd be fascinated with all the stuff he has. And the funny thing is you'd get to the door... And it'd take another hour to get out because <laughs> everything you were saying was so interesting, you know. But as a, you know, he was an, an amazing person, you know. We, yeah, I could say we all knew he was clever. It's only when the obituary that we realised how clever the guy was. But he um, he loved it because him, him being um, living in Oxford, you know, we just started the Oxford Improvisers Co-op, so he's documented the entire Oxford Improvisers Co-op while he was there, and uh, so and we were putting on concerts at the at the um, fire station. And it's there that I met Derek and Evan and all those people. And then Derek asked me to play in, I think we put on Derek Bailey in 1988. Then he asked me to play with him in 1990 and 1991. And, and uh, Michael would be there. He knew Derek quite well and he'd, he'd record loads of, loads. he's got so many recordings. And Evan, Six of One and The Snake, I think it's The Snake Decides were recorded by Michael in the Hollowell Music Room. Wonderful. One of the oldest music rooms in the world, oldest music pub, and he did a great recording there because it's a good acoustic. His thing was all about microphone placement. He would, you know, he would sort of check the room and then he'd, he'd sort of say, this is the best place to capture it. So he always wanted to capture the, in, the space for the music as well. I remember that about him. So sometimes you'd think, why is he putting the microphone there? You know? <laughs> But most of the time, his recordings were just amazing, yeah. And he also recorded the uh, Braxton. I don't know when Braxton was on tour. I think it was at 85, or, but he, they asked him to record it. So some of the recordings, they're Michael as well. That's fantastic. Yeah. Did Michael so, keep a notebook about these recordings? I mean, since he was 
Well, I would say the best thing for you to do is to contact the British Library, explain what you're doing. I'm sure he used to catalogue everything, because when you could get a cassette off him, because in those days, everything was cassette recording, but of course, you know, Michael, Michael's recording everything. You know, he'd be one day be in Oxford, next day be in London. He'd record everything. So sometimes it could take ages to get get your recording. I remember that. And it would he would catalogue things, like he'd have the date of the recording, the day of recording. So all of that will be catalogued in the um, British Library. I mean, there's so many um, recordings that he, you know, he made. And he obviously he was really happy when we started doing sort of like, you know, concerts in Oxford because it's on his doorsteps, you know. <laughs> he recorded literally nearly everything in Oxford. Yeah, incredible. What did he use in the way of uh, microphones and recording devices? I can't remember exactly what my, but I do remember that it would, you'd have two microphones. It was all about placement. What I remember with Michael was, you know, sometimes, you know, he would, he would look at the room and he'd have these two microphones in a particular space to try. We didn't know why, because sometimes we think, why has he got the microphones in this place? But usually the recordings were really outstanding and it depended on the venue. I mean, when he recorded groups, he didn't like to do loads of microphones. He would just have two microphones on a stand, pretty much the best microphones you could get. And he would just place them in a particular way and that would be it. The only time that could be problematic would probably when you've got like a loud group like drums I think that would be problematic, but you know, for most of the stuff we were doing, it was acoustic music. I would have been about that, you know, 22, it's a long time ago, but I remember with this guy, you know, this eccentric guy was just mad about the music and like really glad this was happening in Oxford. So he recorded my first concert, the first improvised concert we did, which was at the Hollywell Music Room, which must have been around 82. And he recorded that. And I used to meet him regularly in a shop called Guerin Records, which was the hangout place for music. He would be in there all the time buying records. I don't think anybody had a collection like him. And of course, he was recording all night. They tried to ask him to, to destroy it. He has all these recordings of the Mont Young. Really? Yeah, from the 60s. You know, he's playing soprano saxophone. Michael's got the entire collection. And he, he told me that he got a phone call from somebody representing them and asking him if he would destroy them. Of course he didn't, but um, he's got, you know, he's got things like that. He's got first recordings of, um, from the radio, from say Cage, you know, all those, the, when he first came out, he's got recordings of everything. Yeah, because he played me Lamont Young and I was just amazed at his soprano saxophone playing, you know, because he's sort of working on a thing that was very in- independently of what Evan Parker was doing. So it was very interesting, you know, so. Yeah, he was a very, very special guy, and he was very encouraging. It was nice to have someone like that around, because he was always encouraging people, you know, young musicians to, to do that. And he had such a wide uh, breadth of, of approaches to music. You know, he, I remember him trying to persuade me that Susie and the Banshees, that Susie, even though she was singing out of tune, was actually a great singer, which was quite funny at the time. You know, he'd, he'd have these long philosophical arguments about Oh yes, I know the person singing out of tune. Or he would say, yes, this person is not actually a very good musician, but philosophically, they're a great musician, you know? <laughs> I always remember things like that. I used to think it was bizarre, but his brain wasn't working like anybody else, you know what I mean? He'd, hear, he'd probably heard something thinking, well, if they keep it up in 10 years' time, it could be really something. He'd like to hear what the group was doing, and then he would um, try and work out where to place the microphones. So practically speaking, uh, let's say he showed up at a gig. What happened yeah. first before before you played? What what did that 
moment looked like when he was doing the placement? Well, so he would get himself a seat at the front, and what he would do, you know, he would see. And at that time, you know, the audience then weren't not always big for this sort of music, so he had pretty much carte blanche. And then he would set up his microphones and his DAT, because he, he was the first person to have a DAT. He really thought DAT was the best way of recording. It was funny, at that time, he would, um, you know, obviously he would talk to oh, the musicians for permission to record, and once they'd given him permission, he might listen to a bit and to work out where he's going to place the microphones. And then he'd have his, he'd have his little headphones on. <laughs> it was very, very like, like a lab, you know, like it's a real, you know, real scientific endeavor with him. You know, he was very particular. Then he would check the levels. And then, you know, obviously as the recording went on, you know, he would record it all. But he would like to be in the front. And depending on what the lineup was, he wasn't into using any effects. He wasn't into overdubbing. It was all about capturing the live recording and trusting that he's captured the sound. You know, he wanted to catch what was really going on rather than thinking he had to sort of change it. So that was his thing. And I think that's very interesting because, you know, so he was very particular about that capturing live music. So when you heard it back, you were hearing what had gone on. That was his whole thing. It could be hit and miss because obviously if, if there was something wrong with the sound, like the PA, then that's what you would get. You didn't want to go for the perfect recording. For him, the perfect recording was making sure he'd captured the music in its right environment. But he wasn't interested in like trying to get a mix from the desk or anything like that. So he was very particular about that. And also, I think really, you know, he, his real love was, like I said, improvised music, contemporary music. It's mostly acoustic instruments. But obviously, you realise that's doing all the, making all the, um, you know, surround sound and ambiosonics. This was something he'd been working on for years. And this is obviously what he, based on how you hear, and that's probably why he was so obsessed with placement. Because like you said, with ambiosonics, those recordings are all about placement, aren't they? It's all about, I mean, I think he used to think that people who were sort of like trying to mix them were cheating. They weren't really getting the music. If I wanted a, a mix, you know, that was too easy for Michael. <laughs> Just to go to the PA and get a mix from it, you know, he would never do that. Yeah, but I would say most of the recordings, they did have a, a different quality from other people's recordings. I remember that, you know, so you, you appreciated that. You only appreciated it more, obviously, past way, because, you know, we used to see them all the time. I was bumping into Michael all the time living in Oxford, and, you know, our hangout was scaring records, so I'd go to that shop at, like, like 12 o'clock in there, and I wouldn't come out of there until about 6, until the place had closed up. <laughs> I'm oh. trying to get away from Michael to get back home. <laughs> if I was going to see Michael, I would make sure I've got nothing else to do because it could be a waste of time. You're not going to get to do anything. He'd always surprise you because, you know, he'd always say, oh, have you heard this? Have you heard that? And he'd always have something amazing that he'd been listening to. I know Evan Packer used to love being recorded by Michael. If he's playing solo soprano, he'd be his first choice. And they were special recordings, you know. And he really had a great knowledge of classical music as well and how to record classical music. He didn't think a lot of the recordings of classical music, he thought they were going too much into trying to get the perfect, instead of capturing the essence of the music. He used to think that it was a bit overkill, the way they were recording classical music. And that was his, one of his theories, was the reason why so much classical music sold dull was because of the overproduction, over-recording. So he was, yeah, he was an amazing guy. You know, sometimes like this, you'd suddenly remember how much you missed the guy, because, you know, sometimes he'd drive you mad because you try to get somewhere and he's 
bumped into Michael and said, that's it, you can't go anywhere. <laughs> Trying to go shopping. And he said, he realised that's, that's it, forget about shopping. I mean, he had this technique where he'd slowly move uh, either closer to, you know, like if you're in his flat, you sort of go to the door to try and get out and then he gets claimed. He'd have this technique so you're sort of trapped between Michael and the door. And then he'd have you there for like another 45 minutes. Then he'd finally let you go. But, you know, he was, you know, he was, he was on his own this time. So he really appreciated company. You know what I mean? So I think someone with, with that brain, because we didn't realise he was such an incredible mathematician. We knew he was, when we saw the obituary, we thought, oh, what now? No wonder we didn't know what he was talking about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he was a, yeah, a special guy. Yeah, a very special guy. Yeah. He was a great mentor, very encouraging. You know, like he was documented a lot of my first attempts at electronic music and he was always good at giving you advice. And, you know, and also he would tell me, and I'm pretty sure he probably was one of the people along with us who probably would have said to Derek, you need to, you need to try, Pat, you need to use this guy. You know, he would have said that um, probably. You know what I mean? He was someone who would, if he was Platy, he would suggest, um, you know, I'm grateful to him because I think he definitely, you know, let people know because Evan remembers that, he was talking about this young player, you know, in his 20s, and he was on about me, and he was talking about it. And so they all knew I was seen as his prodigy, which was quite amusing. But, you know, he was really, yeah, he was a great help to people. I remember in the last year, he used to go around and he started talking about the app. And of course, this is before apps became. So this would be about 88. And he's talking about something that's not even happened yet, and about how you'll be able to use these on you know, popular, com you know, computers, like, you know, like I, which I do now. The iPad thing is probably his, with all his, you know, algorithms that was being used, all these programs on the iPad. I mean, just today, the reason that's why I was a bit late, I had a, a rehearsal for a new project, and I basically did all the electronics with two iPad minis. That's all I brought. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, you know, like, you know, he's the one who helped make that happen, you know. But he used to tell us all these things, he used to think this is real science fiction. And it's happened now, you know, it's, it's true. You you can even go on an iPhone, you know, things people can do on an iPhone are unbelievable. But he was telling us about this thing called apps. He used to think, what's he talking about? You know, because, of course, computers weren't there yet. But he was becoming a consultant. And I mean, obviously, the sad thing is because Michael was just, you know, he wasn't a, a money person. So he got ripped off quite badly sometimes. People took his ideas and he didn't get the money he should have got. Because you think about the things that he helped to create. He just loved the idea of trying putting this in front of people. So he'd probably say to the wrong person, you know, he'd probably say to someone who's more exploitive, oh, this this could happen. And of course, this person would remember. And then, you know what I mean? Because he was so enthusiastic, he'd tell people everything about it, you know. And if obviously, if they were interested, he'd probably start telling them about his ideas, not knowing this person's going to rip him off. <laughs> No, but he was a, he was really very generous. Sometimes you sometimes you felt a bit guilty because you know you realise he wasn't that well. And he's probably in between the gig he's done with you, he's probably been to another seven gigs that he's recorded. <laughs> Don't know how he did it because he used to travel all the time on the coach. That's amazing. He seems to have had more will than anything. Absolutely, honestly, he was very determined because we didn't really know. We just know, I can't remember the term for it, but I just know he, he always used to have an inhaler. And when he got too excited, he'd have to slow down and take the inhaler. But his love of music, he really was a lover of music and, um, and all types of music. Sometimes he'd surprise you. That he had a good knowledge of reggae and, th you know, things that you grew up in. You'd eat anything. Well, how does he know about Lee Perry? And, you know, he was, I mean, that was the thing. So it could be, one minute it could be Stockhausen, it could be Beethoven, it could be Son Ra and Lee Perry, you know. And he'd have a good knowledge of all of this and how to record them. But he had a very different view about how to record them. I remember he used to think, oh, he's got a completely different idea to how we would record because... 
you know, we're brought up with the conventional idea, you know, you mix down all the tracks, but he wasn't interested in that at all. And I think his recordings of last, they just put out on Capiotto's label, they just released all those uh, soprano record, um, recordings of Evan. And some of Michael, the last ones are Michael's. And they do, they sound incredible. Wow. Yeah, he really kept, because he was very much into ambient, capturing the ambience of the sound. So that's probably why sometimes the recordings didn't work out, because if the acoustic wasn't great, then it's not going to work, just the two microphones. He was really into trying to capture the ambience. And now you've got plugins, haven't you? But <laughs> you've got different ambiences as part of the plugin, you know. So a lot, a lot of the things now that people, you know, don't even realise that they're probably all thanks to Mike. Now, that was his whole thing. Understood. Yeah. I really appreciate your um, stretching out like that. <laughs> like I said, everybody loved him. And we all knew he was a genius, but we didn't know how much of a genius until he passed away because he was a very modest guy, you know? Yeah, absolutely. When you say everybody, do you have um, a short list? For instance, because he was a great uh, supporter of the improvised scene. So people like Steve Beresford, Derek Bailey, Evan Parker, anybody on the scene from that time, David Toop, everybody knew him. You know, I don't know, it's probably the same in America, but you know what I mean? Sometimes you turn up at a gig and there's someone there with, you know, with their gear. And if they're not there, then it's not the gig. You wonder, oh my God, this, you know, where's, where's the real gig? Because Michael's not here. And his successor was a guy called Tim Fletcher, who, probably unknown, but he became the archivist after Michael in the 90s, who has again got an incredible collection. And it's funny because he used to say, oh, you know, you're taking over from Michael Gerson, you know, because he would turn up at a gig with his dad and record all the gigs, you know, these sort of people. But, you know, Michael's, just like I said, he's, he used to bat you with all these concepts about how you record something. But it makes sense now. But I'll never forget, he was telling me about, you know, you'll be able to use an app. I think, what's he talking about? Because, you know, we were just having still PCs and the idea of, you know, apps. Because, you know, the latency was still a problem until about 98 the latency started to get better on, but he was talking about all these things you'll be able to do, all these, you know, all these things you'll be able to do on the, you know, on your laptop. And then he said, he think he was, he used to think he says it's science fiction. So, yeah. well, it's extraordinary that you heard, heard this from the Michael's lips. Well, that, that's the thing that I remember, you know, he would tell me these things. I used to think and before he passed away, he was telling me about all these things that are going to happen. The thing that amazed me is he told me about be able to have an app with this, you know, you'll be able to do all this with an app on a computer. And it just didn't sound plausible. But of course, then you had the, the you had the revolution in processing power, and then it made sense. It was just incredible. Yeah. Were you a student in those days? Well, no. I'm you know I was um, young, um, living in Oxford, and that um, wasn't a student officially, but um, uh, you know trying to make a living as a as a musician. It was it was a great time because just before Thatcherism, Oxford had a real art scene. So I was very lucky to be able to capture a lot of things. At the first concert, I remember one I saw Tony Oxley because Tony Oxley would live in Oxford. Really, he sounds incredible. Um, because his top student Nigel Marsh was there. So even though there wasn't a lot of work, there was a lot of activity. You know, so like a lot of people in that time when Thatcher came on the scene, nobody had a job. I mean, she had to create all these job creation schemes just to try and fiddle the figures, you know? And the irony of it is, they had a thing called the job, um, Jobs Enterprising Allowance, which really, after a while, after you've been on the dole for a couple of years, they were saying you could start your own business. And the irony of it is, there's so many musicians, <laughs> it's a bit of irony that we can thank Thatcher for, because, you know, when the when the dole office was hassling you, you'd say, well, I'm going to become a professional musician. And that was 89, and I've, I've managed to stay afloat since then so <laughs> that's fantastic so uh, 
So Thatcher inadvertently was helping to fund all the improvisers, which is probably would have hated, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, those uh, the stranger bedfellows. <laughs> yeah, organizing concerts, Mike would always be there, you know. Oh, that's beautiful. Do you still live in Oxford? Oh, yeah, of course. I'm very lucky. Ironically, a lot of people, I'm one of the few, that's why it probably took me longer to get, and not longer to be acknowledged by some people, because they, you know, they, a lot of people think I'm a Londoner. I still live in Lox, Oxford, and because of quality of life, you know? Well, I know what you mean. I mean, the way Michael, Michael was traveling, so at the time, I think it was quite cheap. And, and we really reaped the benefit. I think that's why Michael was able to do so much stuff in London. It was so cheap. So you'd get on the coach for three pounds and take about an hour and a half. It was great. Did he do any environmental recordings, uh, like on, you know, on those those transportations or um, ambling I'm around not sure on the street? About that, but I, I think he did do some outdoor recordings. If there was a festival and he was around, he would like to try and record them. But I think it was more difficult to try and get it right because you know so many people around, and of course the equipment he had was, as we realise now, was incredibly. Um, valuable and and of course the microphones they they were you know like they weren't big microphones that he had but he was saying about you know the range of these microphones is why they're so unique and he really looked after his gear he really rightly so because it must have cost a fortune and like i said adapt nobody had a dap machine when i at that time he was very meticulous he would have the date if he could he'd have the time but he'd have the personnel he'd have the date of the recording so he was very into documenting everything. He must have the location as well then. He would say what yeah, room is in there. He would say if it was recorded in Oxford or if it was recorded in London or wherever. The good thing for Michael is that it could have been even bigger, but because of his health, he probably couldn't go around the country, which is probably a good thing. You know what I mean? But I'm yeah, sure of course. He's that sort of guy, if he'd been, if he'd been healthier, he'd have gone all around the country recording stuff. You know, improvised scene. He's documented that from that period, from say, like you said, from '81. Oh no, he's got stuff in his collection from the '60s. Oh yeah, like I said, the Lamont Young stuff. And then he would literally stay up all night. It's probably recorded in America, so he's staying. You know, it's probably three o'clock in the afternoon in America. He's staying up all night with his microphones, and he's recording all this contemporary music. Great recording, you know, from the radio. It's incredible. So, you know, even had a special, like, rate, you know, because I was thinking, how did you record this stuff? You know, if it was in America. So he must have had, like, a special radio, you know, that radio, and then you think about it to record it. Yeah. And some of the stuff he's got is on reel-to-reel. -reel. We don't know what's happened to that. That's intense. Well, so he had reel-to-reel -reel decks in, in, his, yeah. in his flat. Yeah, because, I mean, his flat was insane. Honestly, you couldn't move for equipment and records. About how many uh, rooms did he have? I think it was a what two bedroom, but it was saturated with records. Of, I'll tell you how bad it was. Sometimes he couldn't show you something because he couldn't get through the boxes of records that he hasn't listened to yet. It really was insane. That is really something. Yeah. You know, like I said, that's why it used to take so long to get out of his place because you'd be about to go and he'd say, oh, you heard this <laughs> He really knew how to trap you. He'd say, oh, I've just got this rare recording of Stockhouse. And of course, oh, really? And then you'd have to spend like maybe half an hour trying to find it. Oh, that's beautiful. Because he was always buying music as well. Amazing. You, you were the first person I've talked to from the music side who knew Michael. I've been talking to his his software partners, the guys that run Waves. And an astrophysicist and, and a bit, an entrepreneur worked with him on... Um, you know, lossless compression, and that's what yeah, made the, the money. for the first person to tell me about flat. 
I had no idea what he was talking about. He said, it's going to be something called flack. And I just thought... Yeah, he told me that. I, I remember that. I heard from him in, in 81, he mentioned yeah, flack. nobody knew what flack was. He said, this will be the best recording quality. And he used to think he's mad. <laughs> I remember him talk, telling that, and he would, um, if you were talking, like nothing mattered, the world disappeared, and then you couldn't go anywhere without him sort of uh, following. Did so I recall that he had a personal hygiene issue? I seem to rem remember that he was a bit sweaty along with all yeah, of this. Well, the trouble is, you know, he'd get so excited and he, and sometimes he'd forget that he needs to look after him. He didn't really eat well. You know, you sort of, you know, you sort of say, what are you, what are you having? And he'd always have sandwiches. You know, he didn't really seem to eat. Yeah, others say the same. I don't think that he was concentrating on his body, which was giving him no, such a hassle. That was the problem. It's, he didn't want to miss anything, you know, so he'd always have sandwiches. And sandwiches have got their place. But I think sometimes he probably wasn't a cook. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. he wasn't. <laughs> he wasn't a cook at all. I don't ever remember having a meal cooked by Michael, ever. I think that was one of the problems, that he didn't really look after himself. He was just totally obsessed with music. This guy was totally obsessed with music and how to record it better. That seemed to be his mission, how to capture the music that he loved. Well, thank you for that picture. It's yeah. been a, a real pleasure to meet you and continue the conversation. I'm surprised we haven't met before, but I feel I like know, I... it's a weird world, isn't it? <laughs>